The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Picking up the sermon series, God's Answer to the Burning Issues of Today, our sermon today, God's Answer to Civil Disobedience. Our text, Romans chapter 13. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that that sweetest of all names may be spelled out to our waiting hearts tonight in terms that we can understand and that it may prove to be, to many in this audience, deliverance, salvation, and victory. We thank thee that it's recorded that his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. To this end, speed the preaching of the gospel, quicken our spirits, our souls, that we may understand, and understanding receive by faith this sweetest name of Jesus. We ask it for his glory's sake. Amen. I want you to turn to the 13th chapter of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. If you haven't a New Testament, then just sit back quietly and relax as we seek, as God shall enable to interpret this classic passage in the Word of God on the subject of civil disobedience. We are pursuing a series of messages during the Sunday evening services on the burning issues of the day. And without trying to evade or avoid some of the problems that we face in our contemporary world, and particularly our beloved land, we're looking into the Word of God to see what He would say to us on these issues. And tonight we come to one of delicacy and yet of dire need, this matter of civil disobedience. And in dealing with it, may I say from the very beginning, that it has no particular reference to any ethnic group, to any particular area of our country. We're speaking to this subject objectively in the sense in which we deal with it as civil disobedience wherever it crops up in the world or in our land. And as if Paul were living today and speaking by the Spirit of God to our hearts here tonight, we come to a chapter which is right up to date, as we shall see, relevant to the very subject we have in mind. I want to introduce my subject tonight with a number of quotations, which you may have seen in the press or in Christian periodicals of late. Two centuries ago, Edmund Burke, the great English statesman, wrote these words, Men are qualified for civil liberties in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite is placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution it is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate mind cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Edmund Burke, writing in Look magazine a few months ago under the title of Descent or Destruction, Eric Severide asserted, The use of force to express conviction, even if it takes so relatively mild a form as a college sit-in that blocks the administration building, is intolerable. When Dr. Martin Luther King 
who may well be one of the noblest Americans of the century, deliberately defies a court order that he ought to go to jail. Laws and ordinances can be changed and are constantly being changed, but they cannot be written in the streets where other citizens also have their rights. Richard Nixon, in a speech delivered to the National Association of Manufacturers, declared, Dissent is a necessary instrument for change and progress. But the greatness of America is that our governmental institutions provide machinery for peaceful protests and peaceful change. In a nation which provides for progress through the rule of law, there is no cause which justifies resort to violence or lawlessness. Dr. Nelson Bell, Dr. Nelson Bell, in an article in Christianity Today, put it in this way. Civil disobedience can lead to the dissolution of law and order with consequent anarchy. Further, it can lead to revolution, and revolution can open the way to dictatorship with the resulting loss of freedom and ultimate bondage. Riots, bloodshed, arson, loss of life and property are the result of trying to redress wrong in the streets rather than in the courts and at the ballot box. In rejecting gradualism with its attendant frustration and disappointment, many are resorting to a senseless rebellion that adds tension and injustice. In the light of the foregoing, my friends, what is God's answer to civil disobedience? In addressing ourselves to this subject from the biblical point of view, there are two extremes that we must seek to avoid. On the one hand, there is the extreme of divorcing Christianity altogether from such burning issues as civil disobedience and the like. The other extreme is that of being so absorbed in a matter of this kind, and in fact in politics, as to forget altogether what is our distinctive Christian emphasis. For remember, as I speak from this pulpit tonight, I speak not as a politician. I speak as a minister of Jesus Christ, and I speak for the Church of Jesus Christ. What we must do then is to preserve a sense of balance. Someone has remarked that in order to walk in the middle of the road, one must be able to see both sides. And so we want to be balanced in our view of what the Scripture has to say concerning this matter of civil disobedience. Now, of all the passages in the Word of God dealing with this subject, Romans 13 stands out for its clarity and comprehensiveness. And there are three salient factors which call for careful attention, and I mean careful attention. Anyone not interested in following a reasoned dissertation or exposition on this 13th chapter of Romans is quite free to leave at this very moment. First, the appointment of civil power is divinely conceived. The appointment of civil power is divinely conceived. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, says Paul, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are ordained are of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or condemnation. Now, in these two verses, Paul states quite categorically that civil powers are ordained of God. This may be difficult to understand 
in the light of the varying forms of government that exist in the world today, but it's still true that in his sovereignty, God rules and overrules. And indeed, when Paul dictated these words to his amanuensis, Nero was on the throne. Indeed, the Bible teaches us that God makes even the wrath of man to praise it. The fact that no governmental appointments takes place without God's omniscience and God's permission is proved by three considerations. First, the declarations of Scripture. If you were to look down these seven first verses of this chapter, you'd notice that Paul traces the origin of this matter of power back to God no less than six times in four verses. The same emphasis is found again and again throughout the Bible. For instance, in the book of Daniel, we read this tremendous statement. God changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. God, by reason of his nature, by reason of his omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, is greater than any human power. And he can see the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And even though evil seems to prosper at a given point in history, God sees the ultimate. And because he is sovereign, and because he's omnipotent, and because he's omniscient, and because he's omnipresent, he can bring to pass his own purposes, even by turning the very wrath of man to praise him the declarations of Scripture. But it's also traced to this matter of the dispensations of history. In another place, Paul tells us that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. No one can read history without being able to trace the sovereign workings of a divine providence. As Charles Sumner once said, in the providence of God, there are no accidents. Think, for instance, of how the Hebrew nation was called of God to keep alive in the world the knowledge and the worship of the true God, century after century. The Greek nation was sovereignly commissioned by God to spread its gold and wealth of culture and civilization. The Roman nation was providentially sent to impart its iron strength and its splendid instinct of law and order to the barbarian hordes of Central and Northern Europe. The Anglo-Saxon nation was chosen according to the counsel of God's will to colonize and settle the world which we call the new world and so prepare the way for our 20th century. So he who sees God's hand in history at all must also recognize his providential overrulings in the dispensations of history. All authority then is derived from God. There is no power but of God. The declarations of scripture make this clear. The dispensations of history make this clear, but so does the dictates of reason and of conscience. The apostle tells us that the Gentiles have the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meantime accusing or excusing one another. Deep down in the heart of man is a desire for law and order and peace, which cannot be explained apart from God. Even in the area of gangsterism, there is a law which motivates and determines that which men do. And amongst their own and in their own ranks, they desire law and order and peace, choricely as it may seem. It is reasonable to believe, therefore, that the desire for government, justice, and civil obedience is implanted in the one who governs the universe. So we see that behind every form of government, 
in the overruling sovereignty of God, there is a hand that determines the final destiny of nations and then of the world itself. In the language of Paul, there is no power but of God. The powers that are ordained are of God. The fact that a government becomes corrupt does not deprove, does not disprove its divine origin. Any more than the fact that parents who are unfaithful disproves the fact that the family is a created institution from the very hand of God. Or indeed the fact that if a church turns apostate, that in itself does not disprove that the church universal is a work of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Such teaching ought to revolutionize our outlook on national and international events. A man who sees a world going amok and gives up hope and throws up his hand in despair is a man who's never understood the theological and biblical concept of the sovereignty of an almighty God who rules above man and beyond man. A man who sees only the immediate fails to understand the meaning of history. But there is a second factor that we must examine. The authority of civil power is divinely conceived. Secondly, the administration of civil power is divinely conditioned. For rulers are not a terror to those who do good works, says Paul, but to the evil. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. From these verses, Paul makes it plain that the administrative responsibilities of any civil power, of any government, in any country, is threefold. First of all, civil power exists to punish evil. For rulers are a terror to good works. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but for evil. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Our whole legal, civil, and military systems of executing judgment and administrating equity are based upon the proposition that evil must be punished in order to uphold law and order and peace. Hence the need for law courts. Hence the need for policemen. Hence the need for armies. And as long as evil is in the world, and as long as sin is rampant in the world, there must be powers to punish evil. Thank God a day is coming when he whose right it is to reign shall deal finally and completely with evil and introduce his wonderful world of righteousness wherein peace and prosperity will prevail. But until that age and until that moment, civil power exists to punish evil. Secondly, civil authorities exist to promote good. Personalizing the civil power, Paul says, he is the minister of God to thee for good. The test of any good government is that it promotes progress and prosperity in every strata of society. Indeed, by definition, politics is the science and practice of legislation for the public good. In this connection, we thank God for the outstanding leaders and legislators and lawmakers of the centuries. Thinking of Great Britain, I would think of men like Shaftesbury and Wilberforce and Churchill. Thinking of this country, I would mention men like Washington, Jefferson and Lincoln 
who, with delegated powers, sought to do their nation good. Civil power then exists to punish evil. Civil power exists to promote good. But in the third place, civil authority exists to preserve peace. He is a minister of God to thee for good, says Paul. And in another place, the apostle exhorts Christians to pray for all that are in authority. Why? Why should we pray for those who are in authority? Why should we pray for our president and those who minister unto him? Why should we pray for our governors? Why should we pray for our congressmen? Why should we pray for our mayors across the land? That we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The peacefulness, godliness, and honesty of any nation largely depends upon its government. For the government is the public expression of God's divine laws. It is therefore a solemn thing to be a politician. I repeat, it is a solemn thing and a serious thing to be a politician, to be a president, to be a king or a queen upon the throne. God's word declares righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And again, it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established in righteousness. Let us ever remember these solemn facts when we think of those who lead our national life. Indeed, our hearts should be exercised continually to pray for those who are in authority, not only in our public gatherings, but also in our private devotions. We fail to fulfill the law of citizenship as taught in the Word of God when we hold back our prayer support. For as I've said so often and will continue to say, the issues are not those that touch flesh and blood, though interpretation in terms of living is at the level of flesh and blood. But the battle is the invisible war, the forces of power which are behind every government. And it all depends how we pray whether the forces of evil prevail or whether the forces of good prevail. But my main burden tonight is to share with you the third aspect of the truth taught in this amazing passage in Romans 13. The authority of civil power is not only divinely conceived and controlled, but the authority of civil power is divinely mustered. Why? Because God is finally the ultimate power. Conceived, conditioned, controlled is all civil authority in the ultimate. Look again at verse 1. There is no power but of God. And I want to take that up and I want to apply it in a very practical way. When Pontius Pilate claimed that he had power to crucify or release Jesus Christ, the master looked into his face and said, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Imagine that. Imagine that. Here is the Savior standing before Pontius Pilate who represents the supreme power of Rome. Pilate says, don't you know I have power to release you? Don't you understand that I have power to crucify you? And with calm composure, the Savior looks back into his face and says, you have no power at all unless it's given you of God. If you crucify me, the very power with which you crucified me is given you of God. In the light of that statement, we must ever remember that whatever are the heights of power to which any nation may rise, their authority is ultimately subject to the control of God. For this very reason, every God-ordained government has a right to demand of its subjects three tremendous things which constitute the burden of my message here tonight. First of all, what I'm going to call loyal attention. Loyal attention. Render, therefore, to all their dues. 
loyal attention. In terms of loyal attention, we should first of all render due remembrance of all our leaders. Due remembrance of all our leaders. And I come back to something I've already touched upon before we move on. Paul says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for all kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. How often do we honestly pray for our rulers in our public and private prayers? You owe that. You owe that to your leaders under God. Loyal attention demands then due remembrance of our leaders. Secondly, due recommendation of our leaders. We have seen that the ruler is the minister of God. That's the very word from which we get diakonos, the very word that's used for our deacons, a servant of God, a minister of God. If we truly believe this, then we should see to it that we exalt to the place of authority men who both closely conform to the qualifications of a true minister of God. Every elector, in some measure, is responsible for determining the government that rules a country and rules a nation. And I want to say to you young people here and to you older ones here, but especially to you young people of tomorrow, that the nation is going to be governed by the men that you appoint to the place of authority. And if it's only done in prayer and with intelligence, recognizing that such a man is the minister of God, I'm going to tell you there'd be a different kind of election to the one that we're seeing happening right before our eyes. Politicking just for the sake of politics. Vying with one another, mudslinging and the rest are not in good taste and certainly not in the tradition of true biblical and intelligent administration. You've got to think your way through. Can a man who cannot control his home, control a nation, can a man who is divorced, it may be, and living in immorality, control a nation? Can a man who can think properly and merely appeals to the public and appeals to the popular whim of the moment, control a nation? Who constitutes a true minister of God? What are the qualifications of a president? What are the qualifications of a mayor? What are the qualifications of a governor? Are they not qualifications that are deep in the character of God, rooted in the fundamental rules of theology? Is it a matter of power, of money, of popularity, of prestige, or true character of life and of government? We owe due remembrance of our leaders. We owe due recommendation of our leaders. We owe due recognition of our leaders. Wilt thou then be not afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Our, prefer our preferences should never prevent us from rendering due recognition and respect of all those who hold offices of responsibility and authority with integrity and honesty. The Bible warns, listen carefully, thou shalt not revile nor curse the ruler of thy people. And again, the Bible says, curse not the king. I tremble sometimes as I hear of people unintelligently, flippantly, speaking of rulers, and speaking of authority, it's characteristic of our age. There is no fear before men's eyes. 
If my Bible is true and my Bible means what it says, then I cannot pick and choose what the Bible says. If the Bible says something, it means it. And I'm not to curse the king. I'm not to speak despitefully of the ruler of my people. I'm not to revile him. And if only we Christian people especially would take time to write to those who stand for justice, for those who really spell out integrity and honesty in all their actions, and we encourage them and we pray for them, our country wouldn't be in the mess we're in tonight. There is the due remembrance of our leaders then, the due recommendation of our leaders, the due recognition of our leaders, and fourthly, the due recompense of our leaders. Render to all honor. We should always rejoice when honorable members of the government are duly rewarded or promoted. So we see that there is a call for loyal attention. And I mean attention. The Christian should not be irrelevant to this. The Christian should be involved in it. The Christian should be spearheading the whole conscience of our mother life. Why? Because of his loyal attention to matters that demand attention. But it's something deeper than that. And here we come to the heart of our message. With that loyal attention, there must be loyal submission. And I mean submission. It's the word that Paul uses. It's the word that Peter uses. It's the word that our Lord uses. Submission. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now Paul expands this injunction in his letter to Titus, where he says, put the believers in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. The government not only demands but deserves the obedience and service of its subjects. Only when the command of an earthly ruler contradicts the dictates of God am I entitled to say with the apostles of old, we ought to obey God rather than men. In such circumstances, our allegiance is first to God and then to man. If the state requires of us that which violates our loyalty to God, then and only then must we resist? When Nebuchadnezzar commanded the three Hebrews to worship his image, they refused. When Darius prohibited prayer to be offered to anyone but himself, Daniel disobeyed. When Christians were ordered to worship Caesar, they objected and were thrown to the lions. In this regard, the Lord Jesus said the final and ultimate word, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. But my friends, having said that, and having recognized that fact, follow me carefully in my next point. What is important to observe is that failure to obey man is not a call to violence, or bloodshed, or destruction. Even when we disobey man, we are still accountable to God for the preservation of life, of property, and of human dignity. Furthermore, civil disobedience, even for conscience sake, must be punished if law and order are to be upheld. In this context, it is well that we examine briefly the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America, which is the basis for all the talk we hear today of the so-called rights of civil disobedience. Here it is. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. That is the wording of the First Amendment of the United States of America Constitution. 
To start with, let us consider what this First Amendment provides, and then secondly, what it prohibits. First of all, what it provides. One, it provides for freedom of religious worship. Two, it provides for freedom of speech and press. Three, it provides for freedom of people to assemble peaceably. Four, it provides for freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances. In the next place, consider what the First Amendment prohibits. One, it prohibits any form of religion governed by the state. Two, it prohibits any interference with public worship. Three, it prohibits any infringement upon the right of people to speak or write in public. Four, it prohibits any assembly of people for other than peaceable ends. In other words, contrary to the lot of muddled thinking and the fuddled speaking about freedom of action, you and I have no right to block streets, no right to impede traffic, no right to upset buses, overturn, burn automobiles, derail trains, stop or attempt to stop the delivery of supplies, we have no right to invade buildings, close schools, destroy property, throw bombs, commit theft, arson, pillage, or murder, and so on. We have no right to do this on the basis of the law of this country, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America. To be sure, this kind of prohibition would handicap those who want to stage really effective protests or demonstrations, but such individuals must resign themselves to the necessity of proceeding in a lawful and orderly manner, cost what it will, especially Christian people. One young Columbia student, a young lawyer in the making, put it this way during the sit-ins in the university this past week. I was so impressed that I wish I had caught his name just to meet him and to talk with him. As near as I can remember, this is exactly what he said. This whole problem on campus could have been settled through the process of intelligent negotiation without emotion, fuss, or damage. But since the opposite course has been followed, it is only fair that the culprits should accept the consequences of their own doings. If they feel entitled to the actions they have taken, they must likewise be entitled to the penalties attendant upon their behavior. Now the scriptures make it abundantly clear that we're to submit to every ordinance of man. Why? Listen carefully. For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Not for your sake, as important as that is. Not for your country's sake, as important as that is. But for the Lord's sake, we're to submit to every ordinance of man. In this case, the ordinance of man is the First Amendment to the Constitution, of the United States of America. Anything less than submission to this or any other lawful ordinance is civil disobedience. So we see that there must be loyal attention. There must be loyal submission. And as if Paul hasn't gone enough to back up all he said and to make possible those who are in authority over us, he says there must be loyal taxation. For if this cause ye pay tribute also, Remember, says Paul, they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In no society or government do we find the question of taxation exactly agreeable. 
But we must remember that the basis of society is mutual forbearance and self-sacrifice for the good of all. During our Lord's life here upon earth, there was an occasion when he faced the issue of paying tribute. On technical grounds, he could have excused himself from complying. But lest there should be any misrepresentation or misunderstanding, he said to his disciple Peter, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend, go to the sea, cast a hook, take up that fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, that take, and give unto them for thee and me. It is totally inconsistent, ladies and gentlemen, to speak of witnessing to Jesus Christ in the church and in the home if we fail by civil disobedience to witness to our master in the world. Civil disobedience in the final analysis is rebellion against the lordship of Jesus Christ. After his resurrection from the dead, the master looked into the face of his disciples representing the church of all time, and he said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go make disciples of all nations. That authority in heaven and on earth includes every other power ordained of God. To submit to lesser powers and good conscience is to acknowledge the supreme power as revealed in Jesus Christ. Such capitulation to the Lordship of Jesus Christ issues in a life of personal obedience, of social obedience, and of civil obedience. And the wonderful thing about it is this, if only we understood it, that when the Christian church owes the authority of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is released in such power and fullness within the church that he effects his restraining control over the temples and tensions of men and women who know nothing of the regeneration that you and I enjoy through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Solomon means when he says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Or more literally, where there is no prophetic vision, where there's no understanding of the message of God, the people throw off all moral restraint. The people run wild. This is what the master meant when he talked about his followers being light and salt in the world. Yes, light to expose evil, salt to arrest corruption. And I want to say categorically here tonight the greatest contribution that we can make to our country is to practice total obedience, total obedience to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. And if every Christian did this in America, only the Christians I'm talking about, if every Christian did this within every church, there would be such a release of the Holy Spirit within the church that the restraining power of God in the world, and particularly in our country, would be absolutely miraculous. Revival after revival down through the centuries has proved this beyond a shadow of doubt. But I want to say here tonight that no one has any concept of true concern for his country who refuses to make Jesus Christ Savior and sovereign in his or her life. For our task is not only to give him total and complete obedience, but listen carefully, to go out and to make disciples of all nations. Professor Samuel Zwemer once said, the person who goes forth to change society is an optimist. But the person who goes out to change society without changing the individual is a lunatic. It is clear then that change must take place from center to circumference and not the other way around. To effect this change, we must not only preach the gospel, we must practice the gospel. Preaching the gospel heralds the good news of a reconciling God through the grace that has been revealed through his own beloved Son. 
but practicing the gospel stretches out the helping hand in personal welcome and practical fellowship to our fellow man in this desperate land of ours. God's answer, therefore, to civil disobedience is not pious talk. Perish the thought. God's answer to civil disobedience in our hour is commitment to Christ and then involvement for Christ in a desperately needy world. And I put it to you tonight before you leave this place, if you are genuinely concerned with your country, if you have apprehensions concerning what may take place throughout these coming summer months, if you really have a burden for the land in which you were born, if your cry is, let freedom reign, then I want to tell you the greatest contribution that you can make to this country is, first of all, a yieldedness to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, showing him that you're ready for personal obedience yourself, social obedience yourself, civil obedience yourself, then going out to share this message. And by sharing that message and praying the force of the Spirit down upon this land to restrict and restrain the evil passions of men, you can be doing far more than all we see around the world today with all its drum beating and barrier carrying and noise and din. And I want to say to you that the challenge of tonight is just this. Failure to submit yourself to the sovereignty of Christ as Savior and Sovereign. A failure to accept God's answer to civil disobedience. And I'm putting it to you. Are you prepared to be a recruit for the cleaning up of our land? Are you prepared to be a channel for the release of the omnipotent power of God? Has it ever occurred to you, my beloved friend, that with God, with God, one man is the majority? And if God be for us, who can be against us? And it only needs a remnant, a small group of people totally yielded to God to change the whole trend of events in our land, to change the very destiny of our country. And why is it, except that we are absolutely men of the earth and men of the creaturely elements, that we turn to every other recourse and resource before we turn to God and in Jesus Christ really discover the answer? And I want to tell you as churchmen, and I want to tell you as men and women in the Christian life, we have been deluded and we've been blinded and we've been misled by those who tell us that the gospel isn't sufficient. What we need is something extra. God have mercy on such lies. All history is replete with illustrations to show that God's answer to revival to revolution, to cleansing, to everything within our lands down through the centuries has been through the permeation of his mighty gospel in the power of the Holy Ghost. If you're an intelligent young man and young woman or an older one tonight and you mean business with God and with your country, then kneel and surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Sovereign. Let us pray. A moment of silence before we conclude this service. I have every right as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the burden I carry on my heart to challenge the sincerity and integrity of any man who tells me he's concerned about his country, who's now first of all prepared to hear what God has to say, who's now prepared to open his heart to the answer that God has given in Jesus Christ. Unless you're an atheist or an agnostic, unless you're utterly uninformed, then to accept the fact of God is to accept the fact of a God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. If the nations of the earth are as a drop in a bucket in the light of his majesty and greatness, if the nations of the earth are but like dust on the balances for their smallness, what is America 
To God it's nothing. To him it is but an act from heaven. But in his wisdom, and for reasons that you cannot explain or I cannot explain, except that his grace uses instruments like the clay and just the molding that you and I represent, God has condescended to use people, and he's used people down through the centuries. God's answer in every generation has been a man. God's answer in every generation has been either his ancient people, Israel, or his church, made up of fellows and girls and men and women like you and me. And if you long for revival, if you long for a cleaning up of our country, if you long, first of all, for a cleaning up of your own life, then come to him tonight. Just come to him tonight. Look into his face and say, out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.